Hi, this is Steve Hargadon, and welcome to the Future of Education. It is Tuesday, September 27th, and we're sure glad that you've joined us. Our guest today is Cecilia de Oliveira from MIT's OpenCourseWare. Cecilia, thanks for being here. Steve, I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I appreciate it. We get to do a little plug here because the people from the Weiss Awards were the ones who made initial contact and they set this interview up. And you are a Weiss Award winter winner. So there's our plug. Yeah, that's great. I, I think a couple of the folks associated with Wise are on tonight. And uh, I'm looking forward to the next uh, Wise, which is coming up at, in uh, the end of October, I think. And maybe we'll talk about that a little bit later. We can. The Future of Education is sponsored by Blackboard Collaborate. It's also sponsored by my Web 2.0 Labs project at web20labs.com. Coming up, three great virtual conference events. November 2nd and 3rd, the Library 2.011 conference. This is the first year we've held this. I guess these are all free events. Uh, November 2nd and 3rd, two days. Probably about 150 presentations all in the future of libraries, co-sponsored by San Jose State University's library program. Coming up uh, in the middle of November, our second Global Education Conference last year, we had over 15,000 attendees. This is five days, 24 hours a day. Last year, we had over 450 presentations from 62 countries. This is a highly inclusive event. We uh, don't want people from other countries just to attend, but to participate and present, and it's a blast. So that's globaleducationconference.com or globaledcon.com for short. And then we're just announcing the Learning 2.0 Conference. This will be a sort of a spin-off from the Future of Education interview series, January 23rd to 27th. It will be another five days of fun, talking about all the new topics in teaching and learning. Coming up on the Future of Education this Thursday night, a group uh, who've been implementing iPads in the classroom with what they say is some real success are going to tell us about that. Uh, Peter Cookson talks about a Children's Education Bill of Rights on October 4th. Timothy Wilson on a book that you may not know very well, but I devoured and loved on a long plane ride, um, Redirect, fascinating book about uh, social sciences and change. I think it has a lot of implications for education. Gina Bianchini comes on to talk about her new project, Mighty Bell. Gina was the co-founder of Ning, as many of you know. David Lorcher is going to talk about libraries in Web 2.0 on October 14th in a midday interview. Uh, Lee Crockett on Literacy is Not Enough. Mark Sermon on Open Badges. That's going to be a lot of fun. Mike Mariner on Road Trip Nation. Uh, then we have the conferences on Blankstein on improving individual schools. And then Lisa Nielsen is going to come on, and we're going to talk about everything. If you know Lisa, it'll be a fun event. All of our interviews are posted on futureofeducation.com, both in full Illuminate versions and in MP3 format. Uh, we heard from Bob Glenner, filmmaker, uh, last week. Sam Sheltain on Faces of Learning. Howard Gardner from Howard talked to us. Rick and Becky Dufour on communities of practice, lots and lots more. hope that you'll find something there that's worth listening to. So this is where you get to participate. I'm going to give you permissions now to modify the whiteboard. What that means is that you should now be seeing to the left of the map some icons, one of which is a star. And if you click on that star and then click on the map, you can let us know where you're listening from. Feel free to also give a shout out in the chat. 
So for instance, if you're listening from New Zealand, let us know the time and the temperature and the weather. Intriguingly, a North America-centric audience. Ah, this is interesting. I, I would have expected for tonight's show we would get a broader audience, but maybe not. That's fascinating. Well, wherever you're listening from, or if you're listening to the recording, we're sure delighted to have you joining us. So thank you so much for being a part of tonight's show. Cecilia, as I mentioned in the pre-chat, um, I do think that this is one of the great stories of our time. So I'm really delighted you've come on, and thanks so much to you and to WISE. Well, thank you, Steve. It's, it's, uh, I always love to uh, have the opportunity to tell the story because you know, I, I was part of the implementation of it. I certainly wasn't the creator of it, but it's, it's a great story to tell. It is a great story. So let, let's start with your story, if we could. Uh, your story revolves quite a bit around MIT. Can you tell us uh, sort of your history at MIT and what's brought you to where you are now? Uh, well, to be perfectly honest, uh, from what I can figure out, I was actually conceived at MIT. Uh, my parents were both students there in the 50s and uh, both got degrees there. Uh, I remember when I was a, a young kid uh, being brought back to campus and my dad showing me various things that he enjoyed there. So uh, MIT was, was certainly in my blood, uh, although I, I didn't really come back uh, to the institute until I was college age. So, you know, a good 20 years went by and I came back, uh, got my degrees there, both an undergraduate degree in computer science and a master's degree. And, and then I left again and uh, went off and worked for Digital Equipment Corporation. Uh, it was my first, the first part of my career. And uh, then came back to MIT. And I, I worked, at that point, I worked on an educational computing project. This was back in the 1980s uh, called Project Athena, which was kind of a groundbreaking uh, technology project where we switched MIT over from mainframes to uh, distributed computing with the help of uh, digital and, and IBM. Uh, and that was just a fascinating project. I worked on that for six years. And then I left again. Uh, uh, well, I went actually went uh, ended up working for the Central Computing Organization uh, at MIT for, I guess, about 10 or 12 years, uh, working for the Vice President for Information Systems there. and. I was the director of distributed computing at MIT when we were uh, introducing the web and beginning to build applications off of it. That was in the uh, 90s. Uh, and then I left again and I started a company and I was doing, I did that for six years. And then I came back because of OpenCourseWare. So I've been back at MIT now uh, since 2002 when we did our public launch of OpenCourseWare. Uh, but as you can tell, you know, maybe you're sorry at this point, you asked me about my history. I, I've been at MIT off and on. Uh, technology is really the heart of, of uh, my career, uh, although I don't do a lot of it at this point. Um, and, and that's sort of how I, I came to be with OpenCourseWare. You mentioned a date, so I'm, I'm going to be sort of thoughtfully careful here, but um, I, I'm guessing that um, you were in college in the 70s. And, and if you were, were there many women in computer science at that time? No, there weren't. Uh, yeah, I was I was at MIT uh, from 
as an undergraduate between 75 and 77. And, you know, as I looked around a classroom, even if it was a fairly large classroom, uh, there were maybe no more than a handful of, uh, of women in computer science at that point. Uh, you know, women as a whole back in that uh, period were still, I think there were fewer women at MIT in the 70s than there were foreign students, international students. Uh, and it's only been, I think, in, you know, since the 90s that it's now at the point where I think there are more women than men. Um, but it was, it was very different in my day. And, and in my mother's day, let me tell you, she was one of probably four in her class. So things, things have changed a lot in the last 50 years at MIT. Really interesting. Okay, so when OpenCourseWare launched, what was your role? Uh, so I, I came on uh, to the project in uh, fall of 2002 as the technology director, and uh, you know that it's kind of a funny it was kind of a funny role because in in many ways, although people thought OpenCourseWare was about technology, technology was a kind of an afterthought, and it was an enabler, but it certainly wasn't, the technology we implemented wasn't anything uh, groundbreaking, certainly not like what we had done in Project Athena. Uh, but my job was to figure out, you know, given what we wanted to do, what kind of technology we needed, and, and that included both the systems we needed to do our work internally, uh, and that is really publishing kinds of platforms. Uh, as well as what kind of technology we would need um, to distribute the site the way that we wanted to. And, and, and that part, you know, in large part involved partnering with uh, outside content distribution um, networks. Anyway, so we, the biggest project that I had in the early days was really the implementation of, of our internal systems, which uh, really had to be able to support what we knew was going to be a very, very large website uh, with thousands and thousands of resources and a, a publication team that uh, at its peak was about 35 people and that was a 24-hour operation where we were publishing. So we, we needed a system that was going to be able to help us keep track of, of all of our content and where it was in the workflow process. So there's a story here as well about the, the idea. Um, because it had to get adopted at some level by the faculty. Um, and I read a couple of accounts, one which indicated that there was a study about distance learning and sort of a conclusion that, that the ship had sailed. Um, and, and then the need to kind of encourage faculty to be positive about this and, and by making it voluntary that that was sort of a turning point. Are those accurate points in the story? Uh, largely. Um, you know, the, the story really, if, if you want to understand OpenCourseWare and really what MIT's motivation is, you really need to understand how it started. And as you said, I mean, it really goes, it goes back to the late 90s. And I, it's important to try to remember what the mood was at that point. Uh, number one, we still were in the dot-com bubble. Uh, Number two, there were, no, there were a number of our peer institutions that were partnering with for-profit companies and launching uh, various distance education initiatives. Uh, this, is all, this period of time, by the way, is really uh, nicely described by Taylor Walsh, who wrote, who wrote a book that was um, published this year called Unlocking the Gates. And she talks in depth about some of the projects uh, that were launched 
during that period by um, schools like Columbia, uh, Yale, Stanford. Uh, you know, they all sort of were jumping in. Uh, and MIT at that point, you know, was not immune to to the fever and uh, was a little bit concerned about being left behind. Uh, so, you know, there was a, a committee that was set up to. Uh, by the president and the provost, really to look at educational technology and what what we should be doing uh, for our on-campus students, as well as what other kinds of things we might be doing uh, to enhance our programs. And uh, many people, when when the committee was set up and and started looking at things, I think many people assumed uh, that the outcome of that was going to be some kind of a distance learning proposal. Uh, you know, and that's not what happened. So tell us, what did happen? OK, since you asked. Um, so the committee, you know, I don't know you've been in an academic institution before. You know, a place like MIT, although there is an administration, is largely governed uh, by the faculty. I mean, the faculty uh, are very, very involved in any kind of decision making. and so. This committee got set up. Uh, the committee uh, worked actually with some fairly well-known consulting firms uh, who came in to assist in data collection and building business models and uh, trying to identify what the options were. And this work went on in a very rigorous way over, uh, from what I understand, in probably a six to nine month period. And uh, they actually came up with a number of different models for what MIT might do that you might, you know, call distance learning of one form or another. I mean, some of those models uh, were things that would deliver services just to alumni. Uh, and, you know, other models were much more broader based and actually looked at putting, you know, an MIT education online. Uh, but I think as they, as they worked with the consultants and they struggled with things, they really became convinced uh, that number one, uh, uh, transitioning what we do at MIT online, uh, making our courses applicable to a wide audience that would be an online audience, would be really expensive. And if you look at what you could charge for that, you know, your revenues probably weren't going to cover your costs. And probably more important than anything in terms of the conclusion of the group was that doing some kind of major online for profit was just not consistent with the mission of the place uh, and probably wouldn't have a lot of faculty support. And, you know, they, well, they, could, they came up with a number of small projects that they thought might work. They also didn't feel as though for MIT to come out and announce some kind of small little online project that wouldn't be worthy of MIT's brand just didn't make any sense. So they kind of the story is they kind of reached an impasse where they were just didn't really have a proposal and you know there's all kinds of stories about who actually came up with it and you know was he on his exercise bike or his treadmill when he came up with the idea but uh, basically at the very end of the process a long very rigorous process uh, the committee stepped back. And they said, you know, what is the mission of a university like MIT? And, you know, very simply put, it's to advance education, uh, not just for 
the nation, you know, but for the world. And the, they concluded that the best way to do that, really, since we weren't going to be able to make money off of it, the best way to do that would be just to use the internet and give away the materials that we're already creating for our on-campus classes. Uh, you know, and that would be like lecture notes and exams and the syllabus and things of that sort, with the idea that uh, in, primarily instructors at other places could use these materials to improve their own teaching and learning. And that was basically the, the breakthrough idea was, let's just give it away. Uh, and the, pro the proposal, as they began to kind of build it, uh, the proposal that took shape and, and that they were able to get consensus among a majority of the community about fairly quickly uh, was very large proposal and very bold proposal. I mean, and what that means is rather than just focusing on a few sample courses or taking courses from some of our best known programs, their proposal was that we just do everything, that we uh, share materials from virtually all of our courses. Uh, as you mentioned, a very important part of this was that although the vision was to share everything, uh, this had to be voluntary. They couldn't compel faculty to participate. Um, and so, you know, it was kind of risky. You know, could we get the faculty involved at that level or not? No one really knew. But I think the committee felt as though that was the right way to go. The, the administration at, the, at that time, uh, Chuck Fest and Bob Brown, as soon as they heard the proposal, they agreed. They said, this is absolutely what we should do. And they took on a, a leadership role in terms of uh, walking the idea around campus and eventually raising money from outside foundations. So it was a very interesting, I think, in, in retrospect uh, process that may, you know, MIT is probably one of the few places in the world that it would have happened. Uh, our computer science faculty were very largely behind it. and. Uh, they, of course, had been involved in open source kinds of efforts uh, for a number of years, for you know, at least 20 years. They were very comfortable with this idea. And uh, computer science is our largest academic department, so that was a good place to start. But the fact of the matter is that you went all over campus in the humanities area, in, in the science area. They were also extremely supportive and excited about this idea. So we were getting some questions in the chat, and I am capturing those, and we'll, we'll bring them in toward uh, the second half of the interview. Um, I'm intrigued because you talked about an impasse, and it, it seems as though sort of significant paradigm shifts, you know, maybe sometimes or often come from being at a place where you can't move forward in the regular ways, and then being willing to rethink your your process or your ideas. You've prepared a, a really nice slide deck. So at this point in time, if it's OK with you, I'd like to kind of shift to that and let you go through that and tell the pieces of the story that haven't come out and really describe the program. Then we'll come back. I've got lots of questions. I know our audience will have lots of questions. And we'll move to um, more of the Q&A and the conversation. Would that be OK with you? And you may have turned your mic off. I, I did turn my mic off, and I started talking. Um, one, of the, one of the things I was thinking of doing was a little site tour. I'm not sure how many people who are here have, have actually seen the site. And I thought I, I might do a quick one before I do any anything else. But I think that's a could, great idea. Could people kind of indicate, I'm not sure how you do that, but could you kind of indicate if you've actually been on the OpenCourseWare site? OK, so let's have you raise your hand. That's the easiest way to do it. That's the third icon over. If you've been on the site before, so it's the hand icon that says raise hand when you hover over it.
So we're close to half. Okay. Um, so you can. So there's half. Is that what you said? It's like about half the people have been to the site. Okay. But I, let's do a quick tour. I think let's do a quick tour. Okay. So. So remember to take over the follow me button. Go up at the top and click on that follow me box. Gotcha. Okay. Um, so what I thought I would do is just. Uh, I'm not going to do an extensive tour. Um, but I did want to give everybody kind of a feel for what is OpenCourseWare in a very concrete way. Uh, the first thing you should know is the site URL for future reference is ocw.mit.edu. Uh, the website itself is free and open uh, to everyone. Uh, there's no registration uh, to use the site. And pretty much every Thing you find on the site is free to use and distribute and modify uh, with only a few restrictions. And, and I can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, the materials that we have here are, at this point, uh, from over 2,000 MIT courses, which we like to think of as virtually the entire uh, curriculum. Of course, it's not every course uh, that we have at MIT because there's new courses coming on all the time. Uh, the courses do cover all the departments at MIT, so if you look along the left-hand uh, navigation here where it says find courses, uh, as you can see, we've got courses uh, from areas that MIT is very famous for, like our engineering school, uh, our science school. Uh, but we also have courses from our school of management, the Sloan School of Management, the humanities area, arts, social sciences, and the health sciences area as well. Um, one way to get a sense of how much content is there is to go to the link that says view all 2,000 courses, which is what I'm going to do now. And if you scroll, I think you have to scroll on the right-hand side there, scroll your own screen because I can't do that. But if you scroll down, you'll begin to get a sense, and this goes in order of department, in alphabetical order, of how much is here. Um, the courses that we publish on OpenCourseWare are um, as they have been taught at MIT. And so one of the things that you'll see as you scroll down there is the date that the course was taught. So you'll find some courses uh, that were taught 10 years ago. Uh, for example, uh, classical mechanics, which was taught as a physics course, uh, which was taught in 1999. Uh, but that's just as relevant. The content in physics is largely just as relevant today as it was then. I guess with the exception of what I heard came out of CERN last weekend about the speed of light not being the, the fastest ever, that they found a molecule that went faster. So maybe we're going to have to rewrite our physics courses. But uh, you'll also find courses that are much more timely. Uh, we have a two times a year publishing cycle. So uh, what that means is that we typically publish new courses in the spring and then in uh, uh, the winter. Uh, and so you'll see courses from 2010 uh, that are published here as well. Uh, the courses that we have vary widely in terms of the amount of content and the type of content that's there. Uh, I'll give you an example of that in a minute. But th the little icons that we list uh, on, these on the course list, which uh, there's an icon box further at the top of the page there. It gives you a sense of, of, of the variation. 
some courses have, and let me let me bring you to one uh, that has extensive materials. Uh, let's see, differential equations is a mathematics course, typically taken by people their first semester of their sophomore year, and uh, this course, which was taught in the spring 2010, so that's a fairly recent course. Uh, if you, if I click here, you know, what you'll see is uh, the syllabus. So, for example, uh, the syllabus is going to tell an educator how they might teach a simple, uh, similar topic. You know, how many times a week the course meets, the topics that are covered in each session, the kinds of materials that are used. Um, but we, and if you go to the calendar, you'll see you know, in detail how the course was taught at MIT session by session, what topics were covered, etc. Uh, but in addition to that, you'll see the readings. And in this case, uh, the readings, in, in addition to having the textbook, there are additional notes that have been provided by the professor. So those are available here in, a, in PDF form. Uh, there's also extensive lecture notes I think this one has. So for each lecture, there's some uh, content that's been developed by the faculty member. Uh, there's material from what are called recitation sections, where students get together and work on problems in groups. Uh, there's assignments, and in this case, assignments with solutions. Uh, and then this course even has a whole gallery of little applets, uh, which can be used uh, by uh, students to simulate uh, some of the stuff that they're learning. So, and then to top it all off, this has full video lectures. And if you scroll down through this page, you'll see, you know, from lecture one through lecture 35 or so, uh, is full video. Now contrast that with, I'm going to take you to another course. Um, this is truth in lending here now. Uh, let's see, one of the ones that I was looking at earlier today, which is a relatively timely course, but it's also it's a graduate seminar. If you scroll down, let's see, graduate seminar, understanding military operations. Uh, so this is a political science course uh, that basically is a discussion, a discussion course. It's a seminar course, and what you'll see is we have a syllabus just like we did in the other in the other course, but the materials here, when you get into the readings and such. It's an extensive reading list. So if you're an instructor wanting to put together a course like this, this might be useful so you know what kind of materials get covered in different topics. Uh, but for a self-learner, this is going to be pretty hard because there's a lot of stuff they're going to have to buy there or they're going to have access to a library. Uh, and again, this has assignments, but the assignment is uh, basically write a research paper. So you know, the point being that there's a lot of variation in terms of the amount of content. In terms of how people use the site, uh, as I said, you know, educators can use the materials to figure out how to teach a course. Uh, some of the feedback that we have gotten from educators around the world is that the information content of the courses uh, is, is great, but almost more important are, uh, is seeing how MIT structures its academic programs, you know, being able to look at a department and to see what kinds of courses are taught, how they're taught, 
how each individual course is sequenced in terms of what contents in it, how the, to the topics are sequenced. Uh, that's, that's very, very helpful to educators who are trying to put together uh, new colleges for new schools uh, or, or just new, uh, new courses. Uh, students who use our content uh, use OCW to help them with courses that they're taking somewhere else. Uh, or many of them also tell us they use OCW to increase their knowledge of a topic outside of their formal course of study. Uh, MIT students use the site, and, and the way that they use it is to plan what courses they're going to be taking. Uh, in some cases, if you look at, it's kind of funny, if you look at usage of our site within MIT, we have two peaks during the term. Uh, the beginning of the term, which is when everyone's trying to figure out what courses to take, and they use OpenCourseWare to try to figure out, you know, what a course is going to be like, how much work it's going to be, what's going to be involved in it. And then the other peak is at exam time, where they're looking for material to help them uh, with their exam. An another big class of user for us is independent learners. Uh, these are people who aren't enrolled in courses. Uh, they're just trying to uh, brush up on skills. Many of them are working professionals who are looking for material in their field or to develop uh, some new competency. Um, or they, you know, they're trying to tackle an entirely new subject. I mean, I've read emails from people who said, you know, I'm thinking about going back to school next year, but I really want to go back and refresh my math. Uh, or I want to get a job in, you know, as a computer programmer, and I think what I want to do is, is take this course you have first, so I'll be ready for the interview. Um, you know, if you, uh, if you look at, let me go back and look at look at one of these courses just to show you a couple of other features. So if I go to one of these aeronautics courses, one of the things that you'll see, this is another course homepage for Unified Engineering, which is an aeronautics course at MIT. Uh, one of the things you'll see is there, the ability to download materials. Uh, and so we provide a way that people can download for offline use. Uh, so you just click on that link that says start download and you'll end up saving, uh, extracting all the contents from this course uh, to your hard drive. It'll be the same materials what you see online, except we leave out video and audio files to keep the, the overall download from getting too big. Uh, for courses that have uh, video uh, and audio uh, material, we put that up on iTunes U or YouTube. Uh, you can uh, view it from there or download it from there. Uh, let's see, what else did I want to point out? Um, going back to our home page, we have a, a little a set of links at the top uh, that show you some of the special lists we put together. So one of the things we've heard from people is they really like video lectures. And we have about 40 courses right now, maybe 45, uh, that have full video. And so we've created a list. And if you scroll down here, you'll see courses that have uh, full video, you'll have, see courses that have partial video, and then there's also indicators for audio uh, kinds of things. Uh, you go back up to the top, we also have a set of courses that have been translated uh, by, and this isn't by us, this is by uh, other organizations around the world, about 800 courses at this point in time that have been translated, and you'll see the languages here that, that uh, courses have been translated into. Uh, let's see, in terms of audio and video, one of the things that we've tried to do uh, is, let me bring you to a page and just show you, let's see, where are I? 
one of the things that we've tried to do is to make sure that our video has subtitling. I'm not sure that you can actually see this or not. If I go into a video here, you'll see. Yeah, so on this people will need to actually click play if you want them to play it. Yeah, and no, I don't want them to play. Yeah, they don't have to click play. What I wanted to show them is that there are the CC is on. Uh, you can click to turn your captions on or off. And most of our videos uh, at this point have subtitles associated with them. That that's been very useful uh, uh, for people who are hearing impaired, but also for people who for whom English is uh, second language. Uh, one of the really interesting uh, experiments that we've been trying this year uh, is to recruit users who will develop subtitles for us and uh, using our Facebook uh, Facebook page. So if you if you were to click over to our Facebook page, which I can do quickly, uh, and if you were to scroll down, I think we just recently put out another appeal for people to do subtitles, and the response has been fantastic. I mean, we have a group of about 30 people who are actively involved right now in helping us uh, uh, subtitle on some of the things we haven't gotten subtitles on before. So uh, that's, that's working very well and we hope to do more of that in the future. Um, a couple of other things I want to point out uh, before I end the site tour. Um, we've developed two special areas of our site for uh, what we consider key audiences and I want to introduce you to those. Again, go back to the home page. Um, if you are a high school student or a high school teacher or a parent of a high school student or teacher, uh, and if, what I will ask you to do is scroll down the page now again and look on the left, there's a link to Highlights for High School. And I'm going to take you there. This is uh, a set of pages that are connected to our site uh, that we've developed specifically for, for high school students and teachers. And what you'll find here is a list of introductory courses. Uh, and these are courses that don't have a lot of prerequisites associated with them. Uh, you'll find uh, some courses that we've that were developed at MIT specifically for high school. Uh, and we have a number of high school programs uh, at MIT uh, where students come to MIT during the summer or maybe they come for a few weeks in the fall. Uh, and these are courses that have been developed by our faculty and our students. So we've, we've uh, published some of those here. We also have developed something we call the exam prep section. And what we've done there is mapped uh, many of our first year courses into the advanced placement curriculum. So if we look at the biology uh, section, for example, uh, there's you'll see two windows, select a topic, select a subtopic. These are directly matched against the advanced placement uh, framework. And uh, I'm not sure if I can do this or not in the web tour. I, maybe not. Um, but I can. you can indicate which part of the AP you're studying, and then you'll get back materials from our courses that relate uh, to that. That kind of water. Yeah, right, exactly. So that's highlights for high school is something that uh, you might want to look at at some point. The the other area of the site, which is a a, a very new area, we're really excited about. Uh, if if you're a self learner and you want to study introductory physics, calculus, chemistry, uh, etc. on your own, you want to check out these courses. These these are are new self paced courses 
uh, which we just introduced at the beginning of 2011. Uh, this is being done with funding from a, a foundation, the Stanton Foundation, uh, and what they've uh, given us a grant to do is to do 20 of these courses over the course of the next three years. Um, these courses include uh, new materials that have been developed by MIT teaching staff uh, specifically for people who are studying on their own. And the materials in these courses are typically much more complete uh, than our typical OCW courses. They're organized, and I'll show you an example of this. They've been organized into uh, learning modules. So you start, you know, you have a get started button, uh, and you see the modules on the left. Uh, I think this particular one, which is the classical mechanics course, has been, uh, there's 28 sessions or something like that that have been developed here. Uh, we've really made an effort in these courses to add uh, assessment material. Uh, such as worked problems and solutions. Uh, we've added video recitations where some of the graduate student teaching staff work through problems that are relevant to the module. Uh, so you've got uh, places where you can check your work and make sure that you're following uh, what's going on. Um, these courses, uh, let's see if I scroll down here, I'm going to show you one other thing. If you go down to further down to that page, on the left-hand side, you'll see something that says Join Study Group. Uh, so there, what we've done here is linked to some online study groups on OpenStudy. And I'm just going to click over there real quickly, which well, I guess I'm not going to click over there quickly. It doesn't seem to be going. Anyway, what we've done is linked these all of these courses into student study groups. Uh, this particular course, I, I think, has several hundred people that are signed up. And they can ask each other questions and uh, help each other out. We don't really interact with those groups uh, at all because we don't have the resources to do that. Uh, but this, these, are, these are new courses, sort of a new approach for us. Uh, as I said, we're, we're only going to be doing 20 of these. We're trying to pick out uh, the most foundational courses uh, at MIT. And uh, we have eight, seven more under development this year that we will be delivering in probably January, February uh, in biology, microeconomics, uh, computer science, uh, and a couple more mathematics uh, courses. So we're pretty excited about those and putting a lot of energy into that. Uh, and then just to kind of wrap up on the tour, uh, we also have a link here to our new courses. And as I said, we publish, we're publishing courses twice a year. So uh, you should check back you know, regularly, because there's new, new things going up there all the time. We do have RSS feeds, uh, so you can subscribe to feeds uh, either for the site as a whole, or you can subscribe to feeds for video, or you can subscribe to feeds for particular academic departments, uh, whatever interests you. Uh, I also pointed out that we've got a Facebook page, and we try to actively you know, put materials on there. Uh, that would be of interest to our users. Some of them are things that have to do with OpenCourseWare directly, like new courses, or asking people to help with subtitling or other projects. Uh, but we also uh, put pointers up there to other things that are happening in sort of the open content world. So um, we, we, you know, with, we get about a million users a month, and we certainly can't answer questions that everybody has. Uh, but we do have a help section of the site, and uh, 
you'll see some of the some of the frequently asked questions that uh, that we've put here. Um, our monthly newsletter we you can sign up for up at the top. There's a sign up for OCW News. We have about 150,000 subscribers. Uh, and what we try to do with that is tell people about recently published courses or new site features, stories about how our content's being used around the world. And so I, if you're interested, I, I would encourage you to sign up there. That's pretty easy. So um, one of the things that we haven't seen is uh, if you scroll down, let me just close by pointing out, uh, if you scroll down a little bit uh, now here on our home page, you'll see a little ad on the right-hand side, help help millions reach their potential. Um, we're in the midst of our fall fundraising campaign now. And if you if you go through the site, you'll see these kinds of ads uh, circulating throughout the site. You know, although we make OCW free to use, uh, there are pretty substantial costs involved in the staff uh, that actually does the work to publish and distribute the content. MIT provides about half of our support. Uh, but we also rely on voluntary donations. So we have what we like to describe as kind of an NPR model uh, for supporting the project. And uh, a growing part of that is visitor donations. Last year we had uh, over $400,000 in uh, visitor donations. The average is probably in the neighborhood of about $50. Um, so anyway, that, that's, uh, that's the tour of the site. You know, I encourage you to explore it if you haven't. Uh, watch a video lecture, you know, show your friends. Um, and we always appreciate getting feedback uh, or suggestions for improvement. Uh, you can email us at ocw at mit.edu and somebody will definitely answer. You, you know, depending on what question you ask, you may, you may get a frequent, frequently answered question response. Uh, but if, if, it's, uh, if it's something different, you, you know, get a person responding too. So we actually have to make some timing decisions now. Uh, we're at a place in the show where we would normally switch the Q&A. This has been really fascinating. Uh, there's no reason to feel badly about the timing, but we've had a number of questions that I would categorize as fairly practical. There are sort of some larger questions that I'm interested in that relate to kind of the future of education and the impact of this program and where things are going. And then we need the plug for uh, the WISE Awards. So um, the PowerPoint presentation is available to everybody to download just by downloading the whiteboard here. How important is it to you to go through that presentation, or can we just shift to Q&A? Go to Q&A. Okay, good. Okay, so there are a number of really practical questions. I'm going to start with, you've talked about uh, the cost and the funding and, I, and um, the program as a whole. There, there have been questions about the actual compensation for those who are creating the material. So what is the role of the professors and uh, both for compensation and intellectual property? Uh, so MIT, when we started OpenCourseWare, had to get itself clear on its own intellectual property policy. And, and what, uh, what we decided is that for educational content, uh, the faculty own the material. Uh, what we do is uh, we go out and recruit them. And if they decide they want to work with us, then they sign a license to us. They don't give up their copyright. They still maintain it. Uh, but they license it to us. And we have the right then to distribute that content. Uh, and we distribute that content to users under what's called a Creative Commons license. Uh, the faculty receive no compensation from us. 
in the early years of the project, uh, you know, sort of to get up the curve in terms of critical mass, we did pay a small stipend to people. Uh, I think the first year was $3,000, and that tailed off. So by about 2005, uh, we weren't paying stipends anymore. Uh, but, you know, we still have about 70% faculty participation, which is pretty good. What about intellectual property rights of other material that's included in the courses? So uh, one of the big value adds that we provide to the faculty is we go through all their material. Uh, we identify what they don't own the copyright to. Uh, and we you know, make a decision what we're going to do about that so that we can release the material uh, under a Creative Commons license. Uh, there are basically four decisions we can make in terms of intellectual property. We can. Uh, decide to pull the material out and leave a hole, what we call the Swiss cheese approach. Uh, we can in, uh, uh, seek permission to replace it, uh, or seek permission to use it. Uh, we can uh, come up with an equivalent replacement to it. Or fourth, uh, we can decide that we have a good fair, what's called fair use claim in, in US copyright uh, and make use of it that way. Uh, which is something that we're doing more and more of, but we didn't really do that in the early years. Uh, so, you know, by the time the material goes out on the OCW site, uh, you know, 99% of it is, uh, is, has been cleared uh, and is available for use under our Creative Commons license. Okay, so uh, um, there are going to be some other, I think, um specific questions that we'll go to at the end, depending on time. But I'm pretty curious right now about your sense of the impact of what MIT has done. Um, to what degree is this being adopted by others? To what degree do you feel that uh, we're rethinking education in some way based on kind of the scaling of availability of content? Well, I mean, I'm not going to say that MIT is solely responsible for the, the, the ground shifts that have taken place in the last 10 years, but we've certainly, uh, we caught a good wave. And if you look at what the Internet is doing in industries, you know, ranging far away from education, I mean, there's just huge changes taking place. And I think MIT got it right. I mean, I think that for an institution like MIT, which is a, a, a very world-renowned research institution with a lot of, uh, of excellent uh, stuff to share and uh, wanting to have an impact globally, this was absolutely the right thing to do. I do think that we have been part of changing the game. Uh, I think the game was going down a path of um, commercialization, uh, which isn't to say that there's anything wrong with, you know, uh, the University of Phoenix and commercial outfits that uh, decide to go that direction. But I do think that for institutions like MIT, you know, the elite institutions of the world, this is such a no-brainer, uh, a good way to give back, totally consistent with the mission. Uh, and what we've seen in terms of impact, you know, which is really hard to measure uh, in, in the kind of way that a lot of educators would like to measure. It. But I'll tell you, you know, there are many corners of the world where people haven't had an opportunity to get into a really good university where open courseware is really providing them with an opportunity they wouldn't have otherwise had. And we hear from these people day in and day out 
uh, in our email feedback. We've followed up with many of them. We do surveys. We we then do in-depth case studies. And you know, for independent learners, I think it's been a huge, huge boon. There, there's just so much material available. Uh, and more coming all the time, and I do think MIT's had a huge influence on that. I mean, the, the OCW consortium, which which we started uh, a number of years ago, now has 250 institutions, and all of those institutions, and they're all over the world, have decided, yeah, this is the right thing to do. They they may not be doing it exactly the way we did it, but that's fine. Uh, look at what's happened at Stanford this last the last couple of months. It's fascinating. Uh, if, if you have heard about the Stanford AI course, the massively uh, open online course that these two uh, uh, visiting faculty launched, and they said, you know, we're going to teach this course at Stanford for Stanford students, but we're also going to open it up to anybody in the world who wants to take it for free. And not only that, it's not just going to be the content, we're going to let people submit homework and we're going to give them grades. We're going to give them a certificate at the end. I mean, they've got 230,000 people signed up. Now, not all those people are going to go through the whole course, but there is a huge interest uh, in this kind of stuff. And I, I think MIT, you know, Khan Academy is another good example. You know, Sal Khan is an MIT grad. He came out of computer science, and he'll be the first one to tell you, you know, when he he started putting his stuff up and he started hearing back. How people were using it, you know, this is the open education thing. It's it's very powerful. Uh, so I, I feel I think we at MIT feel extremely proud of of how we've been involved in this, and I I do think that you know the the world of education is going to be different as a result, uh, which is not to say that there isn't going to be distance edu distance learning. I mean MIT is not offering a distance education and through OpenCourseWare. At some point we may offer distance education through some other vehicle. It won't be open courseware. Now, there's nothing wrong with distance education, but I do think that open content uh, is something that is, is here to stay. So you say it's a no-brainer, but this conversation goes on at almost every conference I go to, this sort of discussion of the rationale for open courseware. Uh, the concern, like Margaret put in the chat, that an institution would lose revenue um, by not having students attend, and then others will say, "Well, but this is this sort of solidifies the reputation of the institution, and more people are likely to come." And then someone else will say, "This isn't even about the institution, the revenue. It's about just doing what's right." So it's obviously a, a an interesting conversation for a lot of people. I'm going to tell you a criticism I've heard, and I'm interested in getting your response. Uh, I think David Wiley has talked about OpenCourseWare and Khan Academy and said that they're very 1.0, that they're still they're just scaling existing models of learning and they don't involve contribution of others. How do you respond to that? He's absolutely right. I you know, OpenCourseWare to date is not about creating uh, a three three sixty degrees learning experience. I mean, a lot of people would like to make it that, but that's not what it is. It's been, you know, our primary focus is showing the world how we teach at MIT. Now, there are a lot of interesting things happening, uh, other services that have become available from other places that I think are very complementary and that over time 
may provide much more of a learning experience that you know David would like to see. Open study. I mean, we sh I showed you the um, what we're doing on our OCW Scholar courses with with open study, and I know Preetha Preetha was on here earlier. I don't know if she's still on, um, but that that kind of offering is very complementary to what we're doing. Uh, Sal is taking it a step further in that he's now developing uh, what I would characterize as an assessment platform that you can actually put your problems and answers into in, in some kind of a way. And it actually will, man you know, it's, what he has right now is fairly simplistic. You know, if you've seen it, you know, the exercises and, and then it keeps track of how you're doing and, and shows you, you know, where you need to go next. Uh, but that whole area, there's a lot of work going into. Uh, we have faculty at MIT that are, that are working on this, you know, formative assessment. And as that comes along, whether it's from a third party or whether it's something our own faculty provide along with this courseware, uh, I think that's, you know, that's going to be much more significant. The, the criticism that we're 2.0 in that we're not involving other people and taking contributions back in, that's, that's something to think about. I mean, I, I think there's, th this experiment we've done with subtitling is a, is a really, I think, mind-opening thing. Uh, that it's, it's one way of involving people in the whole process of, of opening up. Uh, there may be some other things that we can do along those lines. And I, I'm thinking particularly in the area of teacher empowerment. You know, if there are ways that we could set up uh, online groups where teachers who are using these materials can contribute back uh, their ideas, what worked, what didn't work, maybe new things they developed. I think there's a lot of potential there. So one of the questions that came up in the chat was, have you seen any change in the teaching because of this method of distribution? Um, specifically teaching at MIT or teaching other places? No, I'm thinking it's, uh, you've done a very nice job of indicating the degree to which this sort of shows or allows visibility of the teaching structure and methodology uh, to other instructors at other institutions. But have the instructors at, or the professors at MIT, have you noticed any kind of a change in how they're teaching based on this form of distribution? Hmm, that's a really tough question. Um, I think one of the things that we've seen, certainly if, if you look at, uh, at video, uh, OpenCourseWare came along at a time when there was, I think back in 2002, maybe fewer than 10% of our courses were online in any way, shape, or form. So as OpenCourseWare has grown up, so has the use of the web at MIT. And those, you know, that, those two things have been kind of intertwined. Another thing that's been intertwined is multimedia and the use of video. Uh, I think the video has had a big impact uh, on some faculty. You know, as we came into the classroom and started capturing uh, what was going on with video, uh, the faculty found they, in some cases, they couldn't really teach the same way anymore, or it wasn't going to be very interesting to students. And, and so I've talked with some faculty at MIT who said they adapted how they taught, you know, that uh, the video lectures were great to have online for students for review and that sort of thing, uh, but the, the faculty certainly couldn't do the same thing in class, and so they started getting a little bit more creative and, from their perspective, improving things. So uh, there is that example. Um, I think, 
you know, we have only scratched the surface of how faculty uh, are, are teaching. One other example that I'll bring to the table that I just thought of, a big opportunity is to see how, you know, now that we have our curriculum online, faculty can actually see connections between what they're teaching and what other faculty teach uh, and can begin to think about how do these things connect uh, because we don't design, typically we don't design our curriculum in a, ho in a kind of holistic way. Uh, curriculum is designed at best at the departmental level. And so we actually have cases where some departments teach the same thing that another department teaches and they use completely different terminology and boy is that confusing for students. So the faculty have started uncovering some of these things and working together across departmental lines uh, to be able to do things like flash, what we call flash forward, flash back. So you learn differential equations your sophomore year, your junior year you go into an aeronautics class that requires you to remember what you learned. Most students don't. So being able to flash back using OpenCourseWare to refresh themselves the night before they go into go into a lecture is really useful. Uh, the other part of flashboard, flashback is flash forward, and that's, you know, you're taking your differential equations class and you're wondering, why am I learning this? What does this apply to? Wouldn't it be nice to be able to go forward and see what classes are going to use this in the future and why it's important? So there, those are some small things that uh, we see glimmers of. I think, by and large, faculty have improved their courses a lot because of open coursework. Just the idea of putting it online and making it uh, available to their peers around the world has caused them to reorganize, structure it better, improve the materials. Uh, and we've, we've heard things like that in, in anonymous surveys that we've done. And that would have been my guess, especially when you talked about students kind of evaluating classes in advance and which ones to take, and then with tools like Rate My Professor and the like, it would seem that although no professor would want to think that they were having to substantially up their game when the course was made public, that they would put time into it. Absolutely. Uh, I think faculty take a lot of pride in the work that they do, and uh, you know, if they're going to go public with it, it may not be as as uh, as big a thing as publishing a paper, but it is publishing. And uh, you know, as soon as their course goes up, they start hearing from people. Their people around the world. They go to conferences. People say, "Oh, I saw your course. You know, I really liked it." So they're very aware that that this is public, and it's public to the people down the hall from them. It's public to their department head. Uh, transparency is really quite an amazing principle. So as a courtesy to our guests, we always end on time. So you've now got a couple of minutes to tell us about the WISE Award and uh, its impact potentially on the work and, and give a little bit of a pitch there. Uh, so people probably don't know about WISE. So let, me just, let me just say, it's, uh, WISE stands for the World Innovation Summit for Education. It's uh, an annual summit. I think it's going on its uh, fourth year. Um, it gets, it, it's put on by the Cutter Foundation uh, and is in Doha. So far it's been in Doha every year. And uh, what they are trying to do is bring together people from all over the world uh, from different sectors, uh, not just education, uh, but uh, government political leaders, social entrepreneurs, 
They had a group of students there last year. And the idea is to look at what people are doing to improve education, to look at groundbreaking new approaches uh, to educational problems, uh, to looking at what are the really critical challenges we have around the world uh, this century, and what kinds of concrete actions can we take. And the thing that I found, last year was the first year I went, and I went because we were one of their six uh, projects that they recognized uh, for innovation. Uh, the thing that was mind-boggling for me was the number of people. There were 1,200 people there, and just an amazing collection of, uh, of thought leaders from countries all over the world. And the problems that they're dealing with, it, it was very humbling for me. Uh, to meet, you know, some of the other project winners included uh, a woman who headed up uh, a project for Save the Children called Rewrite the Future, which is focused on the problems of uh, educating young children in conflict-ridden areas of the world. Uh, and they've done an amazing job over the last six years or so of really changing the dynamic uh, in those in those countries, I, I met a, uh, one of the other project winners from uh, Pakistan, who's uh, from the Citizens Foundation, the founder of the Citizens Foundation in Pakistan, who's organized uh, schools throughout the country, uh, taught 90,000 young children over the last uh, 10 years, half of them girls, uh, which in Pakistan is very very uh, amazing. And anyways, people dealing with just all kinds of problems. And uh, and then, of course, there's folks worrying about distance education and how can uh, distance learning help, how can open content help. Uh, it, really quite an amazing uh, an amazing summit. And I'm looking forward to, to going back this year. Uh, I think the conference is November 1st to 3rd. Uh, to date, it's been an invitation-only conference. I think they opened it up this year for the first time to a couple hundred people. Uh, but you know, I'm really looking forward to it. Terrific. Okay, I'm clapping for you. For those who would like to clap, you go to the, the emoticon at the far left, the smiley face, and then you go down. I know it's hard to find. It's on my wish list for collaborate to, to shift its place. But that's clapping, and I really appreciate, Cecilia, that you came on. Thanks to you. Thanks to Wise, Wise for um, making the connection and, and encouraging us to have you on the show. Really appreciate your being here. Well, great to, uh, great to be here, and uh, thanks for giving me the platform, Steve. And um, I hope you all have a, a good night or a good day, wherever you are. Thank you so much. Thanks for, thanks for what you've done. and. Uh, Thanks for sharing it with us. Coming up on Thursday, this uh, group who have implemented iPads in the classroom successfully, they say. We're going to drill down on that and really ask some hard questions. And Peter Cookson on a Children's Education Bill of Rights, and then Timothy Wilson on Redirect, and lots more. Thanks for coming tonight. Thanks to Cecilia. Thanks to everybody for being here. I sure appreciate it. Uh, take care. Good night. <laughs>